Thank you. Okay, we are in Acts chapter 5, verse 27 to 42. The title of tonight's uh, lesson is Fighting Against God. Fighting Against God. Just want to recap quickly. The last time we spoke about Acts, the previous text was two weeks ago. And we were dealing with, the, the question on that evening was, what happens to the church where people get killed for telling a white lie? Maybe it was more than a white lie, but Ananias and Sapphira had lied to the Holy Spirit. And they fell dead right there, the punishment of God. And the question was, how would this not kill a church? You were expected to kill a church. Well, that's not what happened. We saw in the last lesson that extreme miracles took place. Extreme miracles. Extreme healings. Um, the driving out of demons took place. And extreme fellowship. The text says that they met in Solomon's colonnade. The church came together. The church also had great fear within them. To the extent the people were scared. I mean, if you could just lie about something, you could potentially end up dead. And the Holy Spirit was teaching through that the severity of discarding, um, discarding um, you know, the holiness in, in the church. But despite all of this, the church being scared and, and the miracles happening and deaths taking place, the text says the church grew. Many, many believed nevertheless, which is incredible. And I think there were a few lessons we pulled out of that. Um, but basically, we never have to fear um, doing the right thing in the church, um, confronting sin, um, it's not going to make the church shrink. It will continually, it, it prunes the church so that the church can grow. We also saw in the text that people from nearby towns, they, they brought their sick people, brought them to this, this event taking place because this, this was a huge um, revival taking place uh, in Jerusalem and the church seems to have these revivals in Jerusalem happening frequently. Um, whereas in our world today, I'm not familiar with revivals, but when I hear people say, you know, they come just now and then. I think during the Restoration Movement era, I think there were two great revivals associated with what they called the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening. This is not something that happens on a weekly basis. But like in this instance, it seems to have happened like the whole time. Um, so, when this revival took place, the Sadducees were upset. They were jealous. Look at all the tension these guys are getting. And so, they, they, they went down and they grabbed the apostles and they arrested them. And they um, threw them into prison. But, that night, an angel came, released them um, from prison. And the next day, <laughs> the, angel, the angel said to them, Hey, when you, when you go out, I want you to go preach about this new life. In Christ. And when the soldiers the next morning, and this I think this was must have been comical because the, the Sanhedrin meets. Can you imagine getting like 70 people together? You get them to you convene them for the special meeting. Guys, we got an issue in Jerusalem. There's these guys going around preaching the resurrection of the dead, and crowds of people are following them. And it's about this guy that apparently died. We killed him. They say we killed him, and we need to have a meeting with these guys. Otherwise, this, this teaching is going to spread like gangrene. We've got them in jail. Come quickly. I mean, these guys didn't have limos and Mercedes Benzes. They didn't just live around the corner. 
So for them, it was a journey. Some of them probably lived in, on the outskirts of some of the other towns, potentially, I don't know. But they convened this meeting, and then they send the guards, hey, go get those guys in jail quickly. They arrive at the jail, and they are gone. Can you imagine that? What do you mean they're gone? They were locked up. And then another soldier runs up, and he says, no, these guys, they're standing there in the, in, in, in the temple. They're busy preaching. It's like, go get them. Um, so that's what we dealt with um, last week. And the last verse was this. Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. That's Acts 5, 26 to 27. That launches us into tonight's lesson. So they've been collected now from, the, from preaching. They've been collected by the Sanhedrin. And they've been brought now in front of the Sanhedrin. They've broken out of jail. And the Sanhedrin wants to now hear what is going on. Let's hear what these guys say to them. So from verse 27. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. That's the first message that comes from the high priest. It seems like they have three problems with the apostles. Three issues that they have with him. Firstly, you have disobeyed us. How can you disobey us? That's what it seems. We've told you, stop talking in this name. You keep on doing it. You are disobeying the highest authority in, in Israel. The second problem I think they had is you have filled Jerusalem with false teaching. So you keep on filling the whole place. Everywhere you go, you keep on proclaiming this message about some guy who died and was resurrected from the dead. We don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. Because remember we said, we, we think that um, most of these guys were Sadducees. And thirdly, we'd like to guess what the third one is. The last sentence there. You make it, yeah, I mean, you, you're telling the people we killed this guy, Jesus. You want to make us guilty for this man's blood. I mean, are you crazy? These guys were peasants. They were fishermen. And they keep on spreading this. Can you imagine that you were in the Sanhedrin? If I was in the Sanhedrin, I would be highly annoyed with these guys. But just keep quiet. You're giving us a bad name. You don't listen when we speak and when we tell you. How's the people going to respect us if you guys don't? You're spreading this, this thing and it's annoying. You're turning the crowds against us. So you can imagine. It's understandable why they were upset. Well, let's read the, the next few verses. What, did, what does Peter and the other apostles reply? We must obey God. Rather than human beings. This is the most incredible verse. One of the most incredible verses in the Bible. We must obey God rather than human beings. I don't think we get how deep this goes. This is one of the biggest problems in our world. We obey everybody except God. We think we obey God, but actually we're not. It gets difficult because sometimes we obey our parents instead of God. Because they're the authority figure. This is, this, is so, this is so deep. I mean, you've got to go think about this. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. And here they go again. Whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. I mean, dude, can, can you like choose other words 
Like, no, you killed him. <laughs> Don't make it easy. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior. That he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit. Whom God has given to those who obey him. I mean, this is, this is loaded. There's, there's a lot of stuff here. I probably won't be going into all of it. But let's just talk about it. He says, let's look at that first statement just. We must obey God rather than human beings. And as I read this this afternoon, I thought to myself, um, what are some of the common people that we generally fall into the trap of obeying instead of God? And I thought just biblically, and there's three ideas that came up, three verses that came up. The one is in Genesis 3 verse 17, where God speaks to um, to uh, Adam, the first man, he says, listen to this carefully, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Very interesting. And I've, I've picked up, that's one of the big problems that, that we, we often fall into, and it goes vice versa. Because your spouse is the closest person in your life, you entrust your life to this person, you, you um, have children with this person, you share DNA with this person, it's easy to fall into the trap of listening to their voice, her voice, or his voice, instead of God's voice. The very first marriage, that's where it happened. And because this is the closest physical person in your life, sometimes, without knowing it, you follow their voice instead of God's voice. And we've got to be wary of that. Remember, that caused the fall. So that's one example. Is you, 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 you listen, you obey rather those that you love in this world over what God says. Do you see how tricky this is? How easy it is to fall into this? But a second thing is, First um, Samuel 15, 25. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. Listen to this carefully. I was afraid of the people and I obeyed their voice. What is he talking about here? I'd like to say those who surround us. We all have a network of people. We've got friends that surround us. I remember when I was at school, it was much easier to obey with the crowd than to obey God. If most of my friends feel this way, then that's the right way. This is one of the biggest voices that people follow today. Wouldn't you say? I mean, if, if most people, I mean, we take polls. Most polls say, well, uh, whatever the case may be is, is 60% of the population in America say, this is the truth and this is what needs to be done. Then we say, okay, well, I'm going to go with the majority. That's one of the dangers of a democracy. Um, to follow the voice of the crowd over the voice of God. And then there's a third one. So there's the voice of those we love, the voice of those who surround us, and thirdly, the voice of those who were before us. The voice of those who were before us. Mark chapter 7, verse 7 to 9. Jesus said, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Listen to this. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to mere human 
traditions. That's what was the problem with the Pharisees. They would rather obey their ancestors than they would obey what God says. This was the big battle in the Sanhedrin when Peter faced these guys. I mean, surely our forefathers couldn't be wrong. Are you telling me that my grandfather who read the word day and night was wrong about the Messiah? Are you telling me that my grandfather was wrong about the resurrection from the dead? Are you expecting me to now let go of their voices? Yes, I am. It's very easy for me tonight, practically, to stand in front of you and to say that. Because I had that challenge in my personal life. My grandfather was the man that taught me the gospel. And by the way, this week was so interesting. On Saturday, we managed to, to, to meet a, a genealogist. And he, he, this guy traced my whole family in Africa. He's in America. My, my grandmother is in South Africa. I send her the photos of these things. And she's like, what? I, I managed to trace our whole family in America. Back in Africa. She's like, what? I can't even find this in South Africa. But you can find it in America. Seven generations. I'm a, I'm a purebred African, by the way. He showed me on the graph, all my ancestors, up to seven generations, were born in southern Africa, which is really cool. And one of my grandfathers, I mean, he, he, his name extends for, for seven generations to have the same name, Niklas Martinez Dacker. That, that's the name. Now, he was the first Christian in our family. And I followed him wholeheartedly. I'm in ministry because of him. But as I grew up, I had to distinguish his voice from God's voice. He believed fully till the day that he died. He believed. For example, that if you worship with a musical instrument, you're going to hell. He believed that. And there came a point where I had to say, Hey, uh, I love you, Dad, Grandfather. I love you, and I honor and respect you for that view. But I disagree. I'd rather follow God. I don't see that in the text. So we've got to be very careful and we've got to think carefully. My convictions, do they come from my forefathers or do they come from the Word? Because sometimes it's difficult to distinguish the two unless you actually do the exercise. It's important. Obey God rather than human beings. Obey God rather than previous ministers, elders, evangelists, fathers, mothers. Obey God always. Rather, So those we love, those who surround us, and those who were before us. I think it's incredible what, what Peter is telling these guys. I mean, he, he's basically saying, you took away his life further on in the text. He says, well, you killed him, so you took away his life. But God gave back his life, and you expect us to obey you rather than him. Do you get the, do you get the irony here? It's like, you're the killers, He's the life giver, but you want us to obey you rather than him. You kill the innocent, he saves the innocent. Of course, we need to follow him. I think verse uh, 31 and 32 is pretty simple by itself. God, uh, God exalted him. He is the Messiah and Savior. He says in the NIV, he calls him a prince, but that can be translated as, as Messiah. He's the Savior of Israel, and he says to them, you guys, basically, I think he's also saying this. You guys are part of Israel. And so Jesus came also to give you um, the opportunity to repent and to experience the forgiveness of sins. And do you think that that would be a problem for them? These guys didn't need to repent. Did they? 
How do they get the forgiveness of sins? Didn't they get that through all of their religious things, their temple practices? And, and then these guys come and say, hey, you guys also need to repent. I think if they interpreted it that way, they would have been pretty annoyed. And also, I think that they thought that they were in charge of the forgiveness of sins in Israel. Because they, they were at the head of this religious movement that would, that would lead to the forgiveness of sins for the people. And the question might be raised then, why believe us? The apostles would say, well, why, why believe us? And then he gives the answer without them asking the question. Because we're a plurality of witnesses. There's a bunch of us. We've witnessed Jesus. We've witnessed Him resurrected from the dead. And He talks about the Holy Spirit. Look at that, the Holy Spirit. You guys know. You saw the guy that was lame from birth. That was the Holy Spirit that did that. And you've heard about the power of the Holy Spirit in the streets, people being healed. You've, you've seen it. And so this is all evidence that what we are saying is true. We're witnesses and the Spirit has done um, His work. Let me pause here for a moment. Any, any questions, thoughts? I need to pause my voice for a second. And I don't want you to fall asleep. I see Gaelis yawning there. Just joking, mommy. Don't worry. It's okay to yawn. You know, I don't get offended if you sleep. You're welcome to sleep. I just don't want to bore you. No comments. All right. Mike, are you okay, bro? Sweet. Okay. Verse 33. The question is, how do they respond to this speech? When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. There's something intriguing here that I saw in the text when I read the more, the, the more original language. And, I, and I, I'm going to give this as a taste quickly. I want you to, to think where does this appear else in the book of Acts. I'm going to read to you the King James Version. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. That's the King James Version. When they heard this message, preached by Peter, they were cut to the heart. Who'd like to quote the verse? Acts 2, verse 37. They were cut to the heart. The first people that heard the gospel message, the text says that they were cut to the heart. And what did they do when they were cut to the heart? They asked the question, what do we do? The same message, maybe in different words, the same message. Do you see how, what the gospel message does? It cuts you to the heart, but what you do with it differs on the content of your heart. Those guys in Acts chapter 2, they said, what shall we do? We want to do what's right. These guys, when they heard the message, oh, we are cut to heart as well, but what shall we do is, oh, we want to kill you. You see the difference? How different people take the gospel. It's interesting how the gospel cuts people, but often the wrong way. Why are these guys so angry? Well, we've already said, because their authority, their teachings, and their holiness was being questioned by peasants, fishermen. Who are you guys to do this? You guys think you are? Ladies and gentlemen, nobody's authority is higher than Jesus Christ. That's what this is teaching us. Nobody's authority is higher than Jesus Christ. Over the years, I've seen in, in, in the church, people are like, you know, I want to go have a Bible study with this person. Like, can, can I go do that? Some people come to me, like in the church as a, as a minister. I'm like, what do, you, what do you mean? You don't need my permission to do God's will. This needs to sink in. 
You don't need my permission to do God's will. You don't need any church's authority to do God's will. You don't have to go ask permission to do what Jesus had told you you can do already. This is very important. So nobody's higher than Christ. Nobody's teaching is perfect. The Sanhedrin thought that their theology was perfect. Nobody's teaching is perfect. And nobody's holiness is beyond question. Nobody. These guys were spiritually arrogant. How dare you question our holiness? How dare you question our doctrine? How dare you question our authority? And the apostles are like, um, we serve God. He's above all. He's the only one to whom we bow down to. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. I like this. This seems to be a wise guy. Right? He, so he pauses the meeting. He says, guys, I can see you guys are getting angry now. Just calm down. Just calm down. Let's let these guys just go park outside for a moment and let's have a chat quickly. Let's talk quickly. I love peacemakers, don't you? Love guys like this who can see that people are flaring up and anger and there's differences of opinion and, and just comes in the middle and says, hey guys, let's just calm down for a second and think about this carefully. Love it. So he's a Pharisee. In other words, think about it. Did he believe in the resurrection? Yes, he did. So he's like, he's listening to these guys and he's like, you know, I can reconcile myself with this resurrection teaching, but the Sadducees are getting a punch in the nose here. He says, well, we need to think about this. This could be true. Because he doesn't have the Sadducee background. He doesn't have the Sadducee doctrine. So it's specifically a Pharisee that stands up. I think it's great to have a balance in leadership. That's what this is showing us once again. This is why the New Testament teaches us that there needs to be a plurality of elders. Where our personalities and different perspectives come in and we create something that is, that is central to the truth. Now Gamaliel, do we know this guy? He's a doctor of law, the original language says. He's like a doctor of law. He, he knows his stuff. And not only is he intellectually capable and biblically sound, but he is, he's got a good reputation. Got a good reputation. This is a, this is a good guy. Some people say, uh, some historians say that he was the son of Simon. Simon, the man who held the baby Jesus, who was waiting for the baby Jesus. Some people say that. We're not sure about that. Um, so he says, okay, let's go put the apostles outside. Um, and then a quick question. Where do we hear of this name again? I think it's only twice in the Bible. 17 chapters later, Paul is talking and he's explaining his own upbringing. And he speaks in Acts chapter 22 verse 3. And he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city. I studied under Gamaliel, this guy, and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I think this is significant because when you look at Paul's life, you know, our mentors and our teachers rub off on us. And Paul is one of the greatest men that has ever followed Christ. And there's some attributes of Paul that certainly he got from Gamaliel. Which is really cool. And it's very possible that at this moment, while Gamaliel is talking and having this discussion, 
that Paul was under his um, guidance and, and mentorship. So Gamaliel was in essence saying here, I believe, we are not sure if this is from God or not. Gamaliel was being honest here in this meeting, as you'll see as we go on with the text. He was open to the potential idea that these guys were of God. That is why when Paul met Jesus, I suspect, he fell straight into it without no debate. It's very possible that both Paul and, and Gamaliel had discussed this Jesus movement. But the key thing I think we can learn from Gamaliel and Paul is this. That when you are confronted with the truth, you don't debate with it. That's perhaps one of the principles that was carried over from Gamaliel to Paul. Be open-minded that you could be incorrect. And what I also like here about Gamaliel is that he demonstrates faith, as we shall see now. Let's read what Gamaliel then says. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel. Consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. The King James Version says it a little bit differently. It's like, be careful what you intend on touching these guys. Before you touch them, you want to hurt them. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody... And about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. I think that's very wise. Be careful on what you are intent to do in touching these men. And then he gives two examples. Wise guy, right? Wise guy. He talks about Theudas. Theudas seems to have been a guy that persuaded a bunch of people that, he was going, that they need to sell their possessions and pick up all the stuff that they have, follow him to the Jordan River, and he's going to let God open the Jordan River for them to walk through, and he's going to lead them to new pastures. Another guy by the name of Thaddeus arrived on the scene with his whole army, and he annihilated, he basically slaughtered those people, arrested Theudas, took him to Jerusalem where he was eventually beheaded. That's the instance that we think that um, Luke is talking about, oh, that Gamaliel is referencing here. The story of Judas, we're not sure, but it seems like he, he led a revolt against some of the taxation laws, and he had a bunch of people following. It was more a political stunt, and that ended his life and also his movement. And so he's, he's citing recent movements and seeing, hey, look, nothing came of this. But verse 38 to 39 for me, is beautiful, isn't it? In the present case, leave the men alone. It's as if he's saying, and two things come to my mind. Give this over to God and see what happens. I'd like to submit to you tonight. That, that phraseology I just suggested is some of the best phraseology to accept in your life as you live your life. In every situation. You give it over to God and see what happens. Gamaliel 
is someone that dares to stand up and signal a difference with the common tradition and common rule at this moment in time. And he does it in a way that's clever and tricky. It's almost like Solomon here, this tremendous wisdom. He challenges the status quo in a very neat way. When you come to a tricky situation and don't know which way to go, give it over to God and see what happens. That is faith. Why? Because you, be- you are demonstrating to God that you believe that He is at work. And faith rewards, doesn't it? God rewards those who believe. If you're not sure if someone is from God, or if you're not sure that God is working in a church or in a person, just pray about it, give over to God, and you will see. Because if it's of God, it will survive. If it's not, it will end. So, what happens next? His speech persuaded them. Well done, Gamaliel. Good job. Well done. Good job. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Not such a good job. You got, okay, they're not dying, but they get flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Okay. So he sort of won. He helped them avoid the death penalty, but there was still a strong like, no, we need to, we need to get these guys. They got 39 whippings. Beaten with a whip 39 times each. Jesus said that this would happen. Matthew 10 verse 17. Be aware of men, for they will deliver you up and they will beat you in their synagogues. And when Jesus said that, these apostles were standing there with him. How incredible it must be when you fulfill that teaching of Jesus. Why beat them? It was usually a public spectacle when you beat these guys. Let the people see who is in charge here. We'll let you go. We're not going to kill you. But we need to let the crowds know that we are over you. We rule over you. We beat you. Just a quick question. Anybody here, did you grow up with um, spankings at school? You did? At school. I got smashed at school, guys. I got smashed. I had a, I had a teacher that had a... a a, a reed that he would fill with water and you'd bend it like this and you'd hear it. Oh, oh. I don't think about it. When that happens in front of the class, that's embarrassing. But you know why? Because when it stings, you want to act like normal. Walk back to your desk. But you actually want to cry and scream and fall under the, under the tables because it's so painful. It's embarrassing. That's what a whipping does. It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. And so these guys say, we'll whip you in the public so that the public can see we have the authority. We're not going to kill you today, but we have the authority. It's interesting for me that they had threatened him first, then they put him in prison, then they beat him. You see, it just gets worse and worse. It intensifies. The punishment intensifies as the defiance intensifies. Verse 41 to 42. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And there's the reason why they were flogged. Because it's disgraceful. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Isn't that incredible? 
They never stop. The Holy Spirit says they never stop. You tell us to stop, we won't. Doesn't matter how many times you flog us, how many times you throw us in prison, we will never stop. You can imagine that they walked away like dogs with their tails between their legs. That's what you would imagine, right? This is embarrassing. Let me just hide my face from the world. No, the text says they were what? They were rejoicing. They were exceedingly glad. Why? Because they suffered shame for the name. They were counted worthy. Remember this morning what we spoke about. Can they receive a beating without God approving it? God approved this beating. God approved it. And I wonder exactly, the text tells us what it meant to the disciples, but can you imagine what it really meant to them? God has counted us, look at what the text says, worthy of suffering this grace. It's an honor to suffer for Christ. I mean, we don't think like that. I mean, this is incredible. It's like, it's an honor. We're so happy that we could suffer for His name. Two scriptures come to mind. Matthew 5.11 Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And we know that the word blessed means be happy. Be happy when people insult you. Or when people persecute you. Or falsely say all kinds of things against you because of me. I actually like it when that happens. I'm starting to like it as I get older. When I was younger, I was very sensitive. Especially in the church. You know, People are upset when you speak the truth or say the truth or defend the truth. And they, they want to leave and, and speak badly about you. Now I'm, now I'm glad. Please go gossip about me. That's incredible. I'd like to. It, it's really cool when people say bad things about you because you follow Christ. It's an honor. 1 Peter 4, 16. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. Okay. Conclusion from my side. Three thoughts that came to my mind. Satan uses earthly authority to silence the saints. I think that often is the case. And if we, if we do not have faith, if we do not see the kingdom of God, we might be discouraged by the earthly powers. You see, these guys, they look beyond the Sanhedrin. They didn't submit to it. The Sanhedrin was an earthly power structure, right? They looked beyond that and they believed that there was a structure above that and a God above that. And so they didn't stare themselves blind into the earthly structure. And sometimes we do stare ourselves blind into the earthly structure that dominates this world, that belongs to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, as we have been studying the last few weeks. Remember, there is a God who rules in heaven, and he has given Satan a certain level of dominion. That's what we've been studying, right? Don't be concerned about the political realm, and the authorities in this world just keep on doing what Jesus tells you to do. As simple as that. Just do what he tells you to do. The Sanhedrin, the temple, and Jerusalem came and went. But the church is still standing. 
think about. I mean, because they were saying, let's look at this movement. Just see the irony here. It's like, if this is of God, you will be able to do nothing against it. AD 70 comes, and the temple is broken down. The Sanhedrin is dissolved. Who survived, ladies and gentlemen? It's incredible. So, if the Sanhedrin was still blessed by God, it would still be standing today. It doesn't. Secondly, pay careful attention to whom you obey. And I think I have spoken a lot about that. Are you obeying the voice of those you love? The voice of the crowd? Or the voice of your ancestors? Three examples, there might be other voices. Or are you obeying the voice of God in all its purity? And thirdly, be happy when people dislike you for doing God's will. Do not flinch. Just keep on doing it. Any thoughts?